So, Mary, this sixth and final sequence in the Addy canon had me thinking a lot about Sir Elton John. Is that because, like his recent appearance on a certain telethon, this story is also grim and tragic? No. Um, It's because I got thinking about the life that he's led, and I also feel like he owes something to Sam Walker. Do you want me to explain? Yeah, tell me more. When he says, I live and breathe this Philadelphia freedom— And when he talks about the journey that he goes through to that Philadelphia freedom, it's Sam Walker's story, basically copyright. (laughs) Wow. That's deep. I know. Thank you. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. And I am still Allison. Allison, how are you? You know, we're making it through the quarantine, right? We we are going on some number of weeks now. Um, We're both still lucky to be working at home, right? Still at home. Yep. Still (laughs) at home. So far as I know, still at home. (laughs) Still at home. Um, you know, been watching some things, been reading some good books, so that's been helpful. Um, you know, kind of excited to round out our journey with Addie today. Same, honestly, same. And we should say we also really enjoyed getting to talk about an equally uplifting topic, the Titanic, on our most recent Patreon episode. So thanks to everyone who's checked that out. You know, thinking about the Titanic Historical Society has just lit me up inside for about the past week. You know, it's given me a whole new level of something to aspire to in terms of, like, a future for myself. Mm -hmm. It's also made me realize that, you know, part of what I think we like to do is celebrate the deep passions that people have wherever they come from. And I feel like at the end of the day, if you didn't listen to our Patreon, we really want to celebrate the fact that someone made their own Titanic museum and just remind you that you are just jealous you don't have Mrs. Astor's life raft. How dare you accuse me of being jealous again of Edward Kamuda, founder of the Titanic Historical <laughs> Society? You know, I was going to gift you membership in that society someday, but oh. I just feel like it might ruin you. So I don't know. I have to think about that. The thing about you and Edward Kamuda is like, the amount of rent he should be paying for the space that he's taking up in your head is roughly comparable to the price of a ticket on the Titanic. You know what? I would love to kind of hit back at that, but I really can't (laughs) because it just boggles the mind. Like I just keep thinking about it and I'm trying to like understand this almost as like the sinking itself. I just can't. Like how did the society get off the ground? where's Ed Camuda's head at? Like, I would love to sit down with him and with, you know, the safety of some witnesses who are there to make sure I'm safe. (laughs) Here's the thing. It's April 2020. You can either focus on the failures of a captain who went down on a ship 108 approximately years ago or the fact that we live in a kleptocracy. I know what I've picked. Wow. It's like one of those things will keep me up at night and not in a depressing way. (laughs) So... Yeah, it's hard, Allison. It's hard out there. So I've been thinking a lot about that, you know, also trying to dig into some cultural things to distract myself. What have you been, you said you're watching things, you're reading things. What can you recommend? I feel like this is the part of the episode where I always like out Reveal myself. yourself as a serial yeah. killer. Um, I do really want to highly recommend two different books that I've been reading recently, one of which is called Down City by an author named Leah Carroll, which is fantastic. It's a true crime story, but it's really a 
family story. And I also found myself reading um, the story of the last true hermit called The Stranger in the Woods. I enjoyed that book so, so, so much. It's about a gentleman who lived for 27 years on his own in the woods of Maine. He calls Thoreau a dilettante, which is like topical for Excellent. us. Excellent. Um, I think part of what's interesting right now is like, you know, what is kind of speaking to you in terms of literature. And I really loved this story of the hermit because if it were up to him, he would never be found. And I think what sets him apart from, say, like a biblical hermit or historical hermit is they were kind of in it for the fame. Wow. Interesting. Like, you know, when you think of English courts where you could rent a hermit to perform being a hermit for you or people who, you know, have been written about in religious contexts where they were like, you can leave the gifts outside. This guy genuinely did not have contact with people and did not say a word for over 25 years. So it's astonishing to think that you can not speak to anyone for decades and still have the capacity to speak. But if you're trapped in a cave for even a month in complete darkness, you go blind. I don't know what that means. You're raising your eyebrows. That's true. You're just giving me a lot. I mean, you're giving me a lot to think about. Thank you. That's all I have to say. How's your Fiona Apple journey? Well, before I get into that, I just like, did this man (laughs) choose to be a hermit? Like he just one day was like, that's it. I'm walking into the woods. Or was there some like precipitating event? So according to his own life narration and the family, what little they have said or not said, he went on a road trip. At the end of that road trip, he absented himself from society from that point on and lived in the woods. But the family like was already taking introversion to a very strong degree. Like, this actually didn't seem that weird in the context of his upbringing. Okay, fair. I mean, because I'm just thinking a lot about, like, there's a couple examples in World War II of people who were in the jungles of, like, the Philippines and various places. I'm thinking of particularly, there's a Japanese soldier, you probably know this story, who was in the jungle with, like, three other people who then died. Mm -hmm. And the war ends, and he just never sees another person for seven years. So he still thinks the war is going on, and he's literally, like, waking up every morning, saluting the emperor, all of this stuff. And then somebody finds him, and they're like, the war's over. And he's like, ah, uh-uh, no, nice Mm-mm. trick. No, no, my commanding officer has not told me that the war has ended. I don't believe you. So they literally had to fly that guy over, and he was like, stand down, it's over. And he was like, oh, okay. Well, being a known hermit like in the sense again like the biblical sense in different religious cultures is this kind of oxymoron but more common than you'd think like four or five hundred years ago and in terms of actual recent history it's akin to the world's best con artists you'll never know who they are because they didn't get caught Mm. this guy was very close to genuinely being one of the most reclusive people in recent history there's one other person who lives um deep in a jungle And the country he lives in supports him by basically creating a plot of land that no one else is allowed to enter. But even that is like, okay, you know what you're doing. Right. This guy was like actually just doing it. Not for me. That's my nightmare. Okay, good. Thank you. Yes. I don't want to have to go (laughs) into the jungle to find you. No. Speaking of people who are hermits, but not really, uh, (laughs) Fiona Apple has not put out an album in some time. And on Friday, her album dropped. It's called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. And you have not heard it yet, right, Allison? But it's not your journey at this time. I just, just last week, 
just for so Mark could get one specific song. I did not have any music on my telephone or on any of my devices. I had to download Apple Music. Oh my god. I, wow. When I say I don't that is so like I literally can't process that because I listen to music all day long like it's so important to me but also I live with someone who is just like you who's like I could music eh, I could take it or leave it like you know like it's just not there was never a time in her teens or yours I'm suspecting when you were like I need I'm like passionately into different artists like it's the story of my life it's the soundtrack to my life whatever when i see the instagram challenges of like you know so many days of songs and and mapping like songs that you like onto different kind of like bingo cards it locks me up in terror that i will be tagged because i genuinely don't have enough content that i feel like i could map on i think that's probably relatable for a lot of people i mean it is a difference between it us it is <laughs> like anna's like that anna's the same yeah. so i mean i'm sure there's a lot of people like that out there but i know for me it's like <laughs> I have very strong opinions about a lot of things and definitely musical things. And Fiona Apple is a person that I've long admired. And I remember like being a teenager and watching the music video for Criminal and just being like, this is insane and feels very adult and not my life and sort of the embodiment of when you're not in high school and you imagine in your head like this is what high school might be like or college or some glamorous life living in the city. Like it was totally weird and sort of scary but I've loved her albums and anyway she came out with this album there was a um pretty well-hyped New Yorker profile of her that's really interesting if you want to check it out about her kind of reclusive life recording this album over a bunch of years but it's an insane album where she's kind of revisiting all these relationships she's been in but also kind of petty hurts of middle school like with other like friendships with other girls like revisiting all of this stuff in her past and even if you can't relate to any of that there's so many just really good songs but it's definitely an album that you can't just sort of playfully put on when you're making dinner like you have to make a decision to put yourself in a space where you can just focus on it so I listened to this taking a bath and I highly recommend that because I was just focusing on this but there are lines in songs like kick me under the table all you want I won't shut up in a song called under the table highly relatable uh you've got to get what you want um have what you want but so do I in a song called um drum set but it's that song is insane because basically it's like you took your drum set and left and like I can't deal with it and there's this like really crazy article where she goes through each song and is like this is what it's actually about and it was so different than what I thought which is interesting because you sometimes like build up in your head like this must be about that and then the artist is like actually not she was like yeah I don't know my drummer like took her kit and left and I thought she hated me and in fact like she just had a gig and she was like anyway like (laughs) but it's really really good highly recommend do you think it's a coincidence that she did her first demo in 1994 the year that this book came out I did not know that but I love that like she also was the person who got up on MTV and was like this world is BS I won't say it because I know you don't like swearing but um (laughs) But that, you know, still true. And I think if you're listening at a time like now where I think we're looking at a lot of kind of global forces and feel people feeling betrayed by capitalism, by the people on the news saying you should go back to work sooner so that I can make more money, things like that, this might be a particularly resonant time to get into Fiona Apple, who has kind of been on to all of these things seemingly since she was a teen 
Like, I think she would have terrified me if I went to school with her because I would have just been like, you're dark and twisty in ways I don't know. I feel like I am too, but also probably can't relate to or articulate half as well. So she's hardcore and I'm into it. Like, if you like Tori Amos, like, there's probably a chance you'll be into Fiona Apple. It's like the same kind of like auteur attitude where their albums just don't sound like anyone else's. And there's like a number Mm. of women artists who are like that. And in fact, at the end of the first track, she kind of does this thing with her voice that's very reminiscent of Yoko Ono, who's like, I understand a controversial person as an artist. Like there's a song called Don't Worry Kyoko that I would put on in my house if I had a party and I wanted everyone to go home. But what she, what Yoko Ono did as an artist is really influential and it often is eclipsed because of her association with John Lennon and the Beatles. But I would just say that like bands like the B 52s cite her as an influence. I'm getting way off track. I'm just saying I have a lot of strong feelings about this. Please check it out. And if you listen to it, feel free to reach out to me and tell me what you think. I, I think that's great. I think you know, like that may not come from me. It's not going to come from you. It's not going to come from <laughs> Anna. I'm living with that. That's fine. I love you both for reasons that have nothing to do with your taste in music. That's okay. I know. More than all right. Yes. Um, anything else that I should check out? I've really been enjoying Ozark. See, this is the, like, Allison is basically one crisis away from a serial killer segment of the show now. No, but it's, like, you you can just dip into stuff that would make me, like, on high alert and, like, yeah. crazed. And you're, like, this is how I wind down. Yes. Yes. So I've been learning a lot about that part of the world. Ozark is obviously set in Missouri. And I'm sure people from that part of the country will tell me if I said that incorrectly. We've we've had issues with that before. Um <laughs> No, I'm being serious. Like, I'm being earnest. Oh. Um, I I find the show really fascinating. Like, if you felt like Breaking Bad could have had a remix in the Ozarks, this show is for you. Okay. That's kind of all you need to know. I'll also just say, like, we've talked about Justine Bateman in life and on this show before. I'm just so proud of Jason Bateman and, like, what he's made for himself. I think, and I mean this genuinely as a comment, I think few actors have better command of, like, he knows exactly what his range is, which is why he plays the same character in so many things. But he's a brilliant director, and he's like, okay, I'm going to be this thing, and I need everything else around it to be brilliant, so I'm going to direct it just so to get there. I think that that's, a, that's, a, that's some good self-awareness. I've projected, like, I am assuming that for him. But, like, from Arrested Development to The Stranger, which was just on HBO, to this show, to, like, many things that he's done, he always has a button-down shirt tucked in with a perfect belt. And he either plays, like, an accountant or that type in everything, but it works because he – I really do think he's a brilliant director. I'm not just saying that. He puts himself in these very different contexts with a great ensemble. Like, he knows what he can do. I think in a way it's, like, not to bring this back to music, but he's married to Paul Anka's daughter, and it's, like – that's what Paul Anka is. Like, Paul Anka yeah. was like, I'm never going to be hot, and I'm never going to be, like, writing a controversial song, but I'm going to write those, like, solid songs that are going to earn a lot of royalties, aka my way. So it's like, there we go. It's a brand. It's a trend. It's working. God I'm bless. Him. Yeah, I get it. I would watch it, but you told me it's not for me. And Laura Linney's in it, too, right? <laughs> she, I mean... She's a revelation. I love her. Like, she's one of those people where if she's in anything, I will watch it. I don't care. Even her intros to Masterpiece Theater, I'm like, oh, my God, man, you're doing amazing work. Good for you. Like, the ways that she delivers those intros, I'm like, 
you know, in the Academy. It's it's excellent. It's excellent. I'm with her. Her Abigail Adams, like, I can't talk about it. If you love this show, Ruth Langmore would make a great American girl. That's all I'll say. She but see, this is what you do it. where you make me then want to go watch it to identify this. But then simultaneously you're texting me and you're like, I'm watching Ozark. It's not for you. Don't watch it. And I'm like, what do I do? Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not that you wouldn't like a lot of elements. I think there's there's like a certain kind of violence to it that is overwhelming, to be honest. Like I never watch more than two episodes at a time. That's fair. Okay, yeah. I still have to be in a certain kind of place for that, but... I think so. I think so. All right, I will keep that in mind. Thank you for that. I think if Addie were watching, she'd be like, I know American history is violent. See my previous five books. <laughs> it's true. It is true. I mean, are you ready to wrap up the Addie story? Are you ready to get into it? I'm very ready. I'm Let's very do ready it. For- this episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. With book six, written by Connie Rose Porter, 1994, Addie has begun to give up hope of ever having her family together. Then she gets word that baby Esther, Auntie Lula, and Uncle Solomon are on their way to Philadelphia. Don't get your hopes up. Addie searches the city for them, but the reunion she dreamed of is mixed with joy and deep sorrow. Solomon is dead. As Addie prepares for her reading, I'm just, I'm trying to keep you up to date. As Addie prepares for her reading of the Emancipation Celebration, she begins to doubt the words about freedom she is supposed to read. Mama reminds Addie that their family will always be together as long as their love and courage live in her heart. Would that it were that we read this book. Wow. I mean, I don't know where to begin with this book, except to say again, I read this late at night and it made me very sad and it left me shaken up inside. So the arc of this book, as described by the description, is that we're kind of waiting for all the pieces to come back together. As you know, Sam and Papa have been reunited. Now this leaves Esther, the aunt, and the uncle. Mm -hmm. So, like, we still have a lot of family members missing. By the end of this book, all of those plot lines are resolved because Esther and Auntie Lula reunite with Addie. Uncle Solomon, we find out, has passed away, sadly. By the yes. end of the book, Auntie Lula has also passed away. Here's my silver alert. Where in the heck is Madeir? Okay, thank you for saying that. Because I literally wrote in my post-it notes, where the heck is Madeir? 
yeah queen of this series like i'm sorry we deserve to have another madeer check-in <laughs> i was writing i was like okay for all of the emphasis on who we need to reconnect with i was like we've had a lot of people that i loved drop out the teacher not relevant especially with a reference to teaching in this book i'm like It'd be nice if we could get the teacher saying this. Here is my list of questions. Who is Auntie Lula, really? What was the exact nature of Uncle Solomon's death? What is the deal with Mrs. Ford? Is it meant to be an allusion to Ford's theater? I don't know. I don't I don't make the rules. Wow. Where is Madeer? This town is very mysterious, question mark. Why do I miss having a town gossip so much? Because it's our calling and our truth. So anytime we don't see that part of ourselves reflected in the books, we can't hang with it. That's, I'll answer that question just off from the jump. Thank you. That's like our mythos. Like if we're not in here, it's like we can't hang. (laughs) There's a lot going on in this book that I do not understand. Um, I think a possible conspiracy theory that I'm willing to float at this time is that Uncle Solomon is not dead. Hear me out. So what we're told when, first of all, Aunt Lula, who doesn't like literally take a beat on offering any traumatic news, like she sort of does, but doesn't. Like in a sense, this lady was like, did you know that the 19th century is known for sentimental, like huge flights of fancy and emotion, big emotion, big Leo energy in fiction? She was like, I'm about to embody that right now. (laughs) So Aunt Lula arrives. And so basically, let me back up. So, okay, let me back up. Addie. And her family are arduously looking for Aunt Lula, Uncle Solomon, and Esther. In the span of between this book and book five, which we don't really live through, Papa has already gone to the former plantation to look for them, and they're not there. He's told, like, they left a week ago or whatever it was. So he's like, okay, great. He starts looking at various freedmen's camps, doesn't find them. After a month, he comes home. They keep writing letters. They're also looking in Philadelphia because they're assuming that they left to come to this, join them in the city. So Addie's like looking here, there, everywhere, like busting into hospitals that frankly she has no business going into. She's making friends. That's sweet. She's walking home. She's late getting home for dinner. And then she's like, you know what? I'm going to check one more church. She's already late. And then basically sees Aunt Lula and Esther going up the steps and is like, Esther? And they're reunited. And she's like, oh, my God, Aunt Lula, like, where's Uncle Solomon? And and she's like, shh, we'll talk about that later. Which is kind of a weird response. But anyway, they go back to the boarding house. And she's like, they literally eat dinner together, which I can't fathom. And nobody says, where's Uncle Solomon? And then after dinner, she's like, okay, now that I've eaten... He's dead. And it's like, here's my theory. This guy, so allegedly he they made it to the, he was sick when they left. They go to the first Freedmen's camp and stop because Esther's sick. When she's recovered, they come to, they keep traveling. They stop just outside Philadelphia and that's where he dies. What if this man was like, hey, you know what? I don't really want to, I've like already cared for their child by myself for a few years. I'm tasting freedom for the first time in my life. I'm doing my own journey on this one. I'm out of here. And he's like, Aunt Lula, the least you owe me is to tell these people I'm dead. (laughs) Do you think? I'm just saying, is that possible? So something I was puzzling over quite a bit and like not a biblical scholar. Wow. What a preface. Okay. So when you hear all of these names, you have to wonder what it means. So Solomon means peace, right? Sure. Or it's related to the word peace. Okay. And then 
Lulu, or Lula, sorry, her name is related to female warrior. So we have these two dueling forces that are traveling north. Peace survives. No, sorry, peace does not survive, which is symbolic, but this female warrior does. Oof. So because when you look at Esther, when you look at Sarah, you look at Solomon, you look at Samuel, you look at all of these names, they're all biblical. Like they mm-hmm. all have these ties to like kingdoms and biblical names. And I was like, this all has to mean something in the larger world. I do think part of what was so heartbreaking about Solomon is he for us is kind of a reverse Harriet Tubman. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Harriet Tubman gets to live out a very long life and actually is a caretaker to older adults. Like she has this epic where she's saving people and rescuing people. Solomon's life is all about rescuing others. And then there is no one to rescue and save him. Yeah, totally. And it's awful. Like he actually does not get that. I think it would have been too neat to have everyone reunite perfectly. By the same time, There's never, like, a super clear explanation about the nature of this very elderly woman being her aunt. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and I mean, that's less of a problem for me because I feel like with kinship networks, like, that sort of makes sense that you would just sort of use those labels. Like, I know in my family, I'm related to a million people, and if I don't understand the semantics, I just say, oh, that's my cousin. And nobody questions that in my family. And I didn't realize that was strange until like people who don't operate that way were like, wait, are you actually related to that person or not? And it's like, well, Mm -hmm. that kind of doesn't matter at this stage, but technically, yes. Um, So I feel like there's a kinship network that they've just accepted as like, we are related, but you're right that we've never had it spelled out. Like, are they actually biologically related in the same family? Are they just in a kinship network where these kind of terms are used to kind of denote respect or intimacy. Um, But I also think it's strange that, like, the timing of the deaths is really dramatic in a way that almost took me out of it. And Aunt Lula's death was particularly dramatic because we get a deathbed sort of scene that's, like, kind of asking Addie to reckon with the fact that um, not everyone is going to be able to enjoy freedom in the same way or for the same amount of time. And just the sadness that comes with knowing that Uncle Solomon sacrificed probably the remaining like bit of his health or strength to help get Esther um, restored to her family and then doesn't get to enjoy freedom. Um, And she basically says of Solomon, we don't all make it where we want to go in life. Um, We start our journeys and have our dreams and hopes, and sometimes other people have to carry on with them when we can't. And that's on page 44. And it's like, that's extremely sad. We also kind of see Aunt Lulu as a device to get Addie reinvested in her reading of the Emancipation Proclamation. As the kind of publisher's description alludes to, Addie has been chosen within the church to do this reading, which is a huge honor. And over the course of the book, she cares less and less about it because she feels like it's hollow, which like, yes, she's right. She is right. And when we get from this same deathbed scene, um, Lula is explaining about the death, and she says, Uncle Solomon celebrated his freedom back when President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. You know the masters didn't pay that proclamation mind because the South had broke away from the North. But when Solomon heard about it, he came into our cabin and strutted around so proud and happy, and he got down on his knees and thanked the Lord. 
And then she starts to cough and Addie has to give her water. So it's like she barely gets this out. It is an interesting point because I think that story is doing two things. It's getting Addie reinvested in this document. And it's also pointing to the fact that it was recognized as a dead letter in the South because they saw themselves as a separate country. Right. And I think something this whole series has kind of played with, I think really brilliantly is literacy. Mm -hmm. When they are writing and sending letters, Addie is really the one that is in charge of that. Like a letter comes with details about Esther and uh, Lula and she's the only one that can read it and everyone's like huddled around. By the same token, like her father has to go back south and to navigate all of this not being able to read. And you think of the trauma of a moment where like people have heard a rumor that there's a document that gives them freedom, but they don't know how to access it. And people who can read are keeping it from them. Like there's so much happening with that. Truly. I mean, I think it it kind of takes us back to discussions we had on episode one of this um, Addie book series of thinking about what freedom looks like for different folks. And this idea of like freedom could be a polka dot dress if like the economic power to buy your former owner's clothing is a sign of like the measure of your freedom after the war. But in some cases, it could be like being able to learn how to read in Philadelphia for Addie and to be able to teach her mother and go to school. But again, we see in this book how complicated that is. So we have this like generational difference, like you sense Mm -hmm. that this struggle is going to be generational. There's that um, line from Martin Luther King Jr. that's like, I may not like get there with you. I might not be with you when we get to the mountaintop, signaling that there is a generational almost like torch passing that when equity or equality happens, not everyone may be able to enjoy it. But also this like sense that it's not equal amongst all people, even free people of color. And we see that in the kind of B storyline that runs throughout this book about Sarah Mm -hmm. and the fact that Addie is really wanting to, for both of them to aspire to be teachers and continue on with school. And then almost immediately Sarah has to stay home and help her mother wash clothing because it's literally the only way that they can survive economically. I think it was so concise and symbolic and just like very well done. The first like five, six pages of this book Addie and Sarah are sort of in conflict because Addie is so upset over the fact that Sarah will not continue schooling. And it kind of disrupts this dream that young people have about all kinds of things. Like, you know, when I was super young, like I wanted to be a florist and it's like, oh, you and your best friend are going to be florists. And what? not. <laughs> I wanted to be a florist. I didn't know that young. about you. Um, you know, and you have these dreams and, you know, hers are better formed because she's 10 going on 11 now. But this dream that she has of her and Sarah doing this thing together is being upended. And at the same time, they're making these deliveries and Sarah's feet are like freezing. Mm -hmm. And Sarah is so cold. She's not really navigating the streets well. And Addie kind of has this 10 year old humble brag where she's like, Oh, well I know it so well I can show you. And there's a scene where, Sarah is shoving newspaper in her boots and Addie's kind of not helpful. She's like, well, it's not really going to make you any less cold. You need to, <laughs> she and Mrs. Porter. She's like, like you but you need boots. new boots. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's this kind of fascinating moment of like, they are starting to diverge even that young. Right. And, and I think Addie in a very like age appropriate way is trying to articulate the differences she's noticing from like the maturity level of a 10 year old, which is sort of noting the difference Mm -hmm. and saying, why is this happening? It's not like, why don't you just go to school? Like, why can't you just keep going to school and not appreciating that 
there's this economic difference that at her house, she has now three adults who can work to support their family. And Sarah doesn't maybe have that. We don't really know like what Sarah's family life really looks like or what their situation is. But, you know, that not everyone is starting off from the same place, even if they have sort of similar backgrounds or backstories. And yeah, I mean, it's, there's just a lot of disparity running through this book or kind of eye-opening sadness about the reality of what freedom will look like for Addie. So I think we're you know, if you think about Addie as an intersectional figure, right, a person of complexity who also has different identities that intersect with one another and and combine and in some ways compound her problems. I think what was brilliant about this series is she is racially the same as Harriet, but their experiences are very different, partially because of like the circumstances into which they were born. I think this book out of everything we've read so far is a critically important piece on like one her experience being an african-american girl it's also i think the series that hits the hardest thus far on being poor like i think very significantly this book is about the challenges that she is experiencing specifically as a girl who is poor who has friends who are struggling and i think that came out in earlier books but that very kind of tender moment where Sarah is practically limping around the streets because her feet are so cold. Addie goes back inside and her feet are also chilly. And she has this moment of reflection where she says, wow, I wonder how much colder Sarah's feet were. Her boots aren't even closed up. Yeah, it's it's really just, it's haunting in a way. And I think that this book doesn't blunt as many edges as some of the other books do about even Mm -hmm. the harsh realities of the other characters books um, who we've read and journeys that we've gone on. I'm trying to find the page, but there's a quote here where there's a a major kind of play to have Addie say, okay, I'm seeing the realities of people's lives. Like she sees her brother walking down the street with one of his sleeves pinned up and thinks, wow, like freedom at a high cost for him personally, you know, to get to this place she's going to sarah's house and talking with her mother about the fact that you know they don't have freedom for them means is limited such that they can't even think about whether or not sarah can go to school to be a teacher because they have to pay the rent tomorrow so they have to think about that and so on and aunt lula and uncle solomon etc but so i think that then the retreat to have Addie say like you know it's really important that we think about hope and I'm trying to figure out where that is I think it's at the end of the book here all right maybe I'm not going to find it but there's a scene where people talk about hope with Addie and they're like this is what you kind of need to hold on to to get through difficult moments like this where it seems like the freedom that we've attained doesn't really square with the reality of our lives Mm -hmm. and it just makes me think a lot about kind of how hollow the promise of hope can be if you're living in poverty, if you're a black person in this period living with, you know, all kinds of injustice, but also thinking about our own times, like so much of what made Barack Obama appealing was that he was running on literally the phrase, the audacity of hope, Mm -hmm. um, and how that could be something even across race, across economic boundaries that people could buy into to, kind of revitalize or reinvest themselves in an American dream that often had little space for them. And, you know, I know that there have been some critics of Obama that have kind of pointed to the fact that, you know, that wasn't always necessarily true of a lot of his policies per se, um, or that, you know, it was palatable rhetoric, but how do you make that real for so many people? And it seems, you know, it just seems interesting to read back on this book 
with that rhetoric in mind, which certainly like the first readers of this book didn't have. I did a conversation with this woman who's brilliant. She's at Brown and her name is Maya Gamble Rivers. And she does a lot with teenagers about how they can feel empowered by history, but also have a more realistic view of American history. And she does sort of like extension trips with high school students from Rhode Island where they investigate the freedom rides in the places where they Mm. happened and they travel to the South. But she was talking about how you can equip people with knowledge, right? Like you can tell people this street that you live on or, you know, this institution you attend or this middle school is named after a person who made their fortune from slave ships. And then she talked about how if you leave young people with that, you're not giving them any tools to actually grapple with it. You're basically, and I think about this with a lot of academic studies and it's not an exclusive problem to that. It's like you're dropping this information on a person, but you're not talking about how you can evolve as a person to have the grace to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Because that's obviously the billion dollar question. Something I think that this book does well is Addie has basically come to learn that the Emancipation Proclamation has a hollowness to it. But then she's also hearing from older people in her family that for them, it's a transformative symbol and it's a meaningful thing. And when she actually gets up to read it, she kind of has these mixed feelings. And then she starts to say the words. Her voice was loud and clear as she read with the words that had changed the lives of everyone she loved. What I like about this book is, like, she also has the consciousness to know that that's not exactly true. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lesson there of, like, legislation does change lives. Like, you can be very flip about things. Say, like, oh, you know, like, this or that amendment didn't really change anything. And I think there's a usefulness to that critique. By the same token, like, that document created a door where resistance could be more powerful. And... Oddly, like, this book gets that. I know I was not taught that. I know that I was taught because it was so ingrained for so many years. The Emancipation Proclamation freed enslaved people. That is, like, how I understood it. I did a History Day project on this document. Like, I cared about it a lot. And so I've, like, read all these books. I was very excited about it. And I think when this book was written, the consensus was not like, oh, well, you still have to talk about resistance. You have to be. It was that this document freed people, even though that's objectively not true. Yeah. And I think part of where this kind of gets perpetuated is it's like you want to read into the past what you wish it said. So I think you can see this a lot in Lincoln biographies that people Mm -hmm. really want to see him as the great emancipator. And as someone who wanted to free all enslaved people, and that's not really true of what happened. It's not the truth of the Emancipation Proclamation. But because, you know, people will this for their own ends into biographies of him, into textbook presentations of this time and that legislation, it becomes like the received narrative of this document, its impact, and of that period and the intentions of people living then. And it's really hard to kind of strip that away for folks. But I think sitting with the reality of it allows you to do something, um, which is an important thing of adulthood, but also of thinking with history, which is, you know, thinking about things that are complicated, that there's no easy narrative around. And I think the shining moment of this book is the quote you read of the very end of the book, where, as you say, Addie's reading the Emancipation Proclamation 
understanding and embodying that gap between Mm. the letter of the law and her reality and the difference between perhaps what she makes of it and what Uncle Solomon made of it and sitting with multiple things at the same time, multiple stories at the same time. And I think that's probably something that's going to serve her well um, as she continues to grow in this world of reconstruction. But it's, you know, it it's not a satisfying end. It's, there's no, like, slam dunk to this book of, like, great, she made it. Everything's great. No. It's all good. Also notable that the closing scene is, because in the first book, she's so close with Sam. And, and they've drifted in a lot of ways for a whole bunch of reasons. Like, his life has accelerated by about 10 years in, yep. in the short time they were not together. Um, the closing scene is her and Esther basically putting hands together and walking out of the church and going home. And Esther is like a hugely important symbolic figure, not just for her specific actions in the Bible, um, but Esther is also kind of a symbol of exile, which I think is really interesting hmm. because in some ways um, they're not going home. They're not going to the place where they're from. They're going to in the way that people have chosen family. They're going to a chosen home. Yeah. Like their family worked land in a place for obviously generations. Like Uncle Solomon is mad old. <laughs> That's not their home right. because they're dispossessed from it. I also think it could have a double meaning, too, of, like, you were saying off-air that, in a sense, like, Sarah's trajectory could be Addie's, but just one year ahead, um, Mm -hmm. as she's been in Philadelphia for an extra year. And I think that that ending of them joining hands and going home could also be a subtle signaling that while Sam gets to go out in the world and and has to to work as a disabled person, um, Addie and Esther though Addie really wants to be a teacher and it loves the model that has disappeared out of these books, her, she might also be relegated to the home. Like actually it's a, it's a signaling metaphorically of the sphere to which she might be confined either for economic reasons or societal reasons or what have you. But yeah. So when I read that, I was thinking like, Oh, is this meant to signal that, you know, she and Sam are diverging in a lot of ways, but primarily because their lives are going to be defined by these separate spaces. That's very true. And to think of, there's been so much great scholarship on specifically the women, the way that black women were sort of forced into laundry as an industry and the way that I'm thinking of the, the very last few pages, which we did sort of make fun of, of the Kirsten books where like the end of Kirsten books for some reason were like, a ripped open Sears catalog of like, here's all the domestic transformations that are going to happen in the next 80 years. Addie's books also clue us into things like laundry were not really done by machines until very, very, very recently because generally people of a certain class and race could pay African-American women basically nothing to do it for them. So it actually really didn't make sense to invest in machines when people were doing it by hand for almost no money because they were so disenfranchised. It was like very difficult to strike and demand more. Um, So, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. Hmm. So do we want to get into the peak into the past of it all? Because that was actually really interesting in this book. Yes, it was. And I did just want to say one more Sarah fact, because I'm going to miss her. I'm going to miss Sarah. I liked her as a friend. She loved hard. She Um, did. What's so interesting is Sarah is one who doubts in the Bible. 
And I think that's like so fascinating because I think the way that their friendship has played out, like from the beginning, Sarah has been this cool kind of voice of doubt. Like when Mm. Addie is so eager to get into a friendship with Harriet or Addie is like, we can hop on the streetcar and no one will know. Like, I think Sarah has all this amazing symbolic importance, right? Yeah. And also biblically too, like in a purely platonic friendship way, she has to be okay with her partner in crime, Addie, kind of having relationships or friendships with other girls in the class, like mm-hmm. Harriet, and knowing yep. that ultimately Addie will be loyal to her. And that's also, I think, pretty easily mapped onto Sarah's biblical trajectory. Yeah. And I think in a sense, like Sarah also has a lot of faith, even though she doubts, I think she's doubting that they will be delivered of, you know, like having a son and so on. But ultimately it happens. And I think mm-hmm. in a sad way, it's like we don't really know if it's going to happen for Sarah in these books. No, we don't. And in fact, like the sadness is that she likely won't. And we know that and she knows that. But Addie still is waking up to that fact. And I didn't want to like be a Sarah about this, but the reviews of this book, basically the range is from definitely cried to a little too sad. I was, I didn't cry, but I was pretty sad. Like, I wouldn't read this book before bed if I had to, had it to do over. Although the peek into the past of it all was interesting because I think our discussion of the book kind of highlights that it's not an easy narrative of progress. Like, this is not a story that's like, good news, everything for Addie and her family is constantly (laughs) getting better and it's only going to get, like, keep getting better from here. It's like, no, this is our lives. Like, this is what it's going to be. And it's not always going to be a story of wins. It's going to be complicated. Not everyone gets what they want in this life, to paraphrase Aunt Lula. Peek into the past feels very different as a vibe. Like, (laughs) where did you come down on this? I mean, we use this comparison a lot, but it really, the sixth book of the series is always the Billy Joel peek into the past. Yeah. Because it covers 19 topics in four pages or five pages um and i i think the challenge is how far into the present are you trying to go the saddest thing about this to me i'll tell you the truth the saddest thing about this peek into the past um it went just about to the the march on washington for jobs and freedom which is the famous march where martin luther king jr gives his often misquoted speech Um, And it also talks about his assassination. So it goes over 100 years. What made me really sad about this peek into the past is I could almost feel the panel that contributed to it saying to one another, this could be the only time we get to include any of this stuff. And that made me really sad. And that's all I could think (sighs) of was they felt like they had to go from Reconstruction to the 1970s with the assumption that is not wrong that there would not be another African-American character to carry this information to their audience. And that's too bad. Well, I mean, we have Melody and we haven't read her books. So I'm hoping that we get some of that. But I do think what's interesting is that I think that's a really powerful point. And I think, like, I also... I'm sorry, Molly. Uh, <laughs> no, I said Melody. I said, I forgot about her. It might be. But she's no. like only a few years old. She's very new-ish in the franchise and certainly to us. But I think in both books, too, I'm wondering if the panels that put this together were also forced to not only cover a huge span of time and tons of material, but to also kind of flatten the narrative to mm-hmm. not reveal 
in ways I think that the books actually do tackle that there's more than one way of thinking about the politics and realities of your life as a free black person in Philadelphia in this period. I don't see that difference of opinion allowed in the peak into the past. Like we don't really have even like the Booker T. Washington versus Du Bois kind of debates that clearly drawn out. And I'm sure that's because of the limited amount of time and material but also for this material, but also like when we're talking about Martin Luther King Jr. at the end, we don't have a sense of black power of Malcolm X of it all. Like that there, you know, there are ways of wanting a seat at the table and also like wanting to upend upend the table. And maybe Mm -hmm. that was too radical for American girl and they just didn't want to go there. But beyond that kind of like choice of narrative to share at the end here, I also think that what made me the most sad about this was thinking about if we were hired as part of a group to revise this, to reflect everything that's happened in the years since. I think it would upend the sort of narrative of progress they have going here in the peak into the past, because yes, we did have the first black president, but we also have, you know, Nazis on the rise in our country, like blatant racism, um, a president who refuses to disavow white supremacy. Like there's so much going on that just makes me really, really sad for what this would look like today. I think to add to your point, when I was thinking about like what I was taught, this five to six page segment is really heavily focused on civil rights. Like if you had to name a theme, I would say the theme is civil rights and African-American history. I think one of the disservices of our education from the 1990s was on the one side, you had this emphasis on girl power, right? Like believing that you could, right? Like put your overalls on girls, like you can do it. You can wear a beret. It looks good on everyone. You know, those kinds of (laughs) issues. True. Um, But on the other side, I feel like civil rights was always taught to me in past tense. And I think about that. And I think about the 1992 Americans with Disabilities Act, which is probably like one of the most important civil rights pieces of legislation in our country's history. I was five when that came up. Yeah, I was five. When I learned about civil rights in school, civil rights is a thing that happened in the 50s and 60s, and then it stopped because it was done. Right. And I understand it now as pieces of that movement stopped because various parties in the U.S., including the government, assassinated people to stop it. I understand that now. Right. But you were taught it in the 1990s, I think, unless you had a very, very progressive education as civil rights is in the past tense because all those problems were solved. Yep. And the last paragraph of this peek into the past, I think, fits very much into that mold where it shows you the March on Washington. And it does say the work of civil rights continues today as people of all races continue to fight for fairness. But the way that this narrative is built It suggests that after the civil rights movement kind of height of desegregation in the 1950s, it says that the black struggle inspired other people to fight for their rights. It basically tells you that the contest over black civil rights ended 70 years ago. Right. Which is 100% the way that I think we were both taught in school. I was thinking earlier today that when I was in fifth grade, that's when I read these books probably. And I had a teacher who um, her big event that she was really passionate about was organizing a Martin Luther King Day prayer service. Like this was her thing. And 
it was just strange because thinking back, like she cried every year when people would get up and read excerpts from his speeches. And it was very sincerely done and, and felt, but we were never taught with this that the problems for which he and many others gave their lives have been solved. And in fact, at mm-hmm. the end of his life, the pivot in his activism towards criti- really strong critiques of capitalism and of the war, like thinking about the ways that civil rights encompass- encompasses so much of our world and is not a finished problem to sort of like every year, one day a year, be like, we did it, like it's over. And <laughs> yeah. and I think that's what makes even a lot of pop culture stuff that's coming out right now hard to take because it's not p- past. Like the Mrs. America series, which I've only seen the first episode of, so I can't really comment, but I'm about to, so here we go. <laughs> but it's framed around Phyllis Schlaf- Schlafly, can't say her name, and the her activism to prevent the passage of the ERA which has still never passed. And, you know, in the book, they talk about the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which she and others would say makes the ERA irrelevant because everyone's protected under those. In practice, not so. But it's just the fact that it's presented as completed um, and also that you can't carry more than one identity at a time. Like, this peek into the past is not intersectional. Like, it talks about black people is one category and then it's like well and we think women were also inspired to seek their (laughs) rights and it's like well i'm pretty sure like if you flip two pages previous you have ida b wells there like (laughs) you know what i'm saying pokes around the corner like excuse me excuse me and then also with the march on washington for jobs and freedom like bernard rustin was like the principal organizer of that event and as a gay black man, I, you know, I couldn't help but think, you know, where are we with gay rights in this country, trans rights, queer rights, you know, all of these areas where, to me, we're living in a time that will not be known for its progress. And that's yeah. a tragedy. And it's also very difficult to be thrown all this pop culture stuff that just reminds you how how little progress has been made on civil rights, in part because I think we've fallen into this trap of congratulating ourselves continually through these kind of corporate celebrations of wokeness and you know i note this from you know pride has been canceled in a lot of places but june is pride month and now every corporation is like like wells fargo is at pride and is like sign up (laughs) like we love the gays and it's like do you like is that what you think this means is that what you think this is well by the same token an american girl book is not a key to revolutionary action in american society right like Maybe for some people that goes without saying, but maybe not. But I think the reason why they're worth revisiting is as much as these books are a product of 1990s sort of celebrations of civil rights past and multiculturalism as it was understood then, we know people and we can think of other people for whom these books started to build tools that did lead them to revolutionary thinking. And I think that's... I think that's the challenge. Like when people say like, oh, you hate Felicity. We don't. No. We understand it. Like we really don't. But also the piece of like, if we didn't think there was enough here that was worth talking about or if we ourselves did not get so much from these, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't bother. Right? Right. Like the way that this essay is written is very much of 1994. And again, I think it's very much a – an essay by committee where people are being told like this is it right like and you also have to hit points that let's be honest that the american girl parent readership base is gonna recognize yeah 
I think today, and I'm so interested, like, to put Melody in conversation with what's happening in Flint and Detroit, I think if you revise these peaks into the past, they would do really well. And I think today you would end with Black Lives Matter and um, Little Miss Flint. You would have to. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think it would be interesting even, you know, as a community for us to, like, sketch out a peek into the past, like, maybe even do, like, a mm-hmm. mini syllabus. Like, here's what we think the peek into the past today would look like and put some stuff yeah. together. Like, I'm willing to do that. We can maybe put some stuff together and have people contribute. But because I do think it's important to sit with, and I just keep thinking about that photograph I love of the little girl looking at Michelle Obama's portrait mm-hmm. in the National Portrait Gallery and thinking about, like, that – if that reader received Addie today, right. um, what would it mean to her in a different way than if, you know, someone who received it in 1994 and how would the kind of framing of American history be different for her as well? And I think that you're right, that those would have to be foundational points to hit. I don't know how you look at that picture and like, I guess if you're a white supremacist, but like, I don't know how you don't feel something. Yeah. Yeah. I cry every time I see that photo. Not kidding. Like, it moves me so much. And, you know, it just makes me sad because it's like that little girl doesn't know yet, like, so much of, like, the trauma and issues we have in our nation's history and in our present that, you know, like, we're working to address. I don't know. It's it's a dark time. It's a grim time to be (laughs) reading this book, I guess. Or maybe it's catching me in a kind of uh, morbid mood about it all. But... Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to sit with the hope that Addie was, you know, instructed to kind of live with at the end of in this book. But it's difficult sometimes, you know, it's difficult. And I think what's good about it is they don't shy away from that. Like Addie is a person who has internal conflicts. Yeah, and I really like that. I think in some ways, I think the people who created Peek into the Past for this book were held to a much more strict guideline than Connie was perhaps or like Mm. Connie sort of was just so nuanced about how she did this that she could give us all these different emotions and complications and moments of not knowing and end the series with that which I think is actually a really strong move in a way that's not you know any of the other endings we've had so far um, that kind of moves for an easy it would be easier to end this with a moment of like total happiness every plot line is you know easily resolved but instead you know we have this and it's it's difficult but I think it's real agreed agreed we are not done with Addie We have a few more episodes coming out that we're excited to bring you where we're going to talk to some special guests. And I really like your idea of a syllabus, Mary. Maybe that's something that we explore with our guests and with our audience. Yeah, definitely. I would love to put together like a mini syllabus. There's a great example actually about um, blackness and meme culture that I will put in the notes for our episode. But thinking about Um, For example, the ways that, um, you know, if you're sharing black memes in your communication with other folks Mm -hmm. and you're not a black person, are you actually like engaging in blackface? Like a lot of stuff that, you know, you might just want to think with and a lot of really interesting histories of meme culture, um, which often are wrapped up in black culture. And so just a lot of stuff there that's really strong. So I'll definitely share that, but it might be a good kind of format for us to use as well. 
Absolutely. So Allison, as we've come to the end of Addie, at least the books, not the content, where are you at? Any any final thoughts, Jerry Springer style? Addie, I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss Sarah a lot. You know, we talked before about like what these, you know, different dolls have taught us. And I'm still thinking a lot about Addie. Um, I'm looking forward to conversations with other professionals kind of about what Addie means to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think something that I'll take away from Addie is a reminder that, you know, like we have a lot of fun talking about different aspects of the culture and, and what it's meant. Um, but I think Addie's a reminder too of like the weight of history and that it always matters, you know, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about a specific plot line from Kirsten or what was at stake in Felicity's life. I think Addie really is that great reminder of the way that, you know, people will choose and then are forced to embody history. And if you Google Addie fan fiction, you do not find the kind of content that you come up with for Felicity, which is like her and Ben on the horse. What you come up with is like brilliant think piece after think piece about the meaning of this doll. And I think Hmm. that tells you a lot. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And I think, you know, even the pieces that basically say, you know, as a young black woman reading these books, Addie was bad for me and here's why. Like you Mm -hmm. learn so much from those pieces like, we're not coming down either way. It's not for us to comment on other people's experience, particularly women of color who have lived this in ways we will never understand. But I think this community um, has done so much powerful thinking with Addie's story that is really resonant and thinking about the limits of, like, so much of these books are about American freedom, like, who has it, who doesn't. And I think this series, probably more than any of the others, for obvious reasons, has really helped us to kind of think with that. Yeah. It is weird that a British person gave us Philadelphia freedom. Allison, I just have to say that I am absolutely appalled by what I saw in that. I keep calling it a telethon. I know it wasn't. They were allegedly not raising money. Allison, you did see it. So I just have to tell you, this man had like a sparkling grand piano out Mm -hmm. on his like back patio. There's a basketball hoop behind him. Like, the piano has been an assistant probably spent 20 hours polishing this piano. It's shown, okay? Yeah. Then there's a basketball hoop and two basketballs. And I'm like, I'm sorry, we couldn't have somebody like roll that basketball hoop out of frame unless he was like trying to flex and was like, I'm a hands on dad. Like, I'm not just playing, like, I'm still standing, which is kind of a weird choice for him to go with like an 80s <laughs> post recovery hit. But. Like, it was just a weird moment, but he, and he always says of Paul McCartney, I literally can't even talk about that. Paul McCartney doesn't know how to drop keys. Like, he can only play his music in the key in which he wrote it because he doesn't know how to move it, which I respect. And Elton John's like, obviously, when you get older, you drop the keys on your song. So if you can't hit the high notes anymore, you can adjust. Even with the man who flexes on that he knows how to do that. It was, his performance was a shock. Maybe he's a lovely person, I don't know. His performance was an absolute shock to me, and it came one or two after Paul McCartney, who is, other than Dolly Parton, my absolute, like, heartthrob person. Like, I literally just compared a friend of ours to Paul McCartney on the cover of With the Beatles earlier today, purely because she was wearing a turtleneck, but regardless. (laughs) He performed Lady Madonna as, like, a dirge or, like, a funeral march for no reason, and also, like, he had no business performing like that day someone should have just checked in with him and just said like please don't do this it's such a good reminder that everyone needs real friends 
it is no i i mean that sincerely like i think that's true like i would have come to you and i would have been like listen allison i love you so much i can we sit down for a second okay i know this telethon's jumping off in two hours the camera crew's here (laughs) or like you have your iphone you think all ready to go please don't do this no i think that's like like i really honestly believe that i really think that's true Somebody should have, but I think that's the problem of being that famous is that people are afraid to tell you real things. I think that's so true. I mean, like, that's not an issue we have, but... We give each other what the Apple Store would call fierce feedback often (laughs) and freely, but with love. And I just think they deserve that. And that's that's all I really have to say. I had to turn it off after that. I was, I threw up my hands. Oh, well, I then Camilla Caballo, is that how you say her name? Caballo. And Shawn Mendes came on and I know that they're dating, but they give off such brother sister energy that I was like, I, this isn't like the Carpenters where it's like, it feels like a lot, but I'm into it. It's so fake that I was like, I can't engage this. I had to turn it off. I had to get rid of it. I, I can't deal with it. She does not love the way he calls her senorita. It no, doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Also, I saw footage of them walking down the street in their clearly yeah. staged, clearly staged pandemic, like messy outfits where they like <laughs> look like they've just walked away from a nuclear apocalypse. It's like, yeah. guys, if you're going to try to fool us, yeah. work harder. <laughs> Thank you. Like the devil works hard. Paparazzi works harder. We yeah. know. Also, people have been making fun of Ben Affleck for going out just for Duncan, and he's very, like, conspicuously flexing a Duncan cup, and I'm like, God bless the USA. Yeah. Get he that sponsorship. He should wear he a mask. Should, I think now he is wearing a mask, but he keeps insisting on having now staged photos where he kisses his girlfriend with both of them wearing masks, and it's like, we We're don't not, need this. I, no, stop. No. I don't need this on Grey's Anatomy, which I'm not even getting into, <laughs> but it's like, just stop. <laughs> um. <laughs> Please stop. Um, if people want to find you and tell you what they think is happening between Sean Mendez and Camilla Cabello. Let me tell you, absolutely nothing is happening between <laughs> okay. them, Allison. For reasons I won't get into on this show, I have many other theories I'm not going to get into. But like, but if they know, <sighs> yeah, how okay. should they reach you? If they want to reach me, and just know if, if Elton John is listening, I don't want to hear from you. Just putting that out there. Also, okay. before I give my handle, I just have to say, Allison, last week was the anniversary of the Emancipation of Mimi album being released, and I didn't hear from you at all. Didn't get a card. Just saying. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you? Think about that. I also sent you Glitter, which I found on YouTube, the album, and like literally no one in my life is happy about this but me. So I'm Mary, just sitting with that. So <laughs> I will watch Glitter with you and our Patreon fam. Like, I will. <sighs> okay. I mean, I have it downloaded. Yeah. Okay. For Pride Month. Thank you. Finally, somebody. (laughs) Wells Fargo, the non-Wells Fargo sponsored Pride event for AG is watching (laughs) Glitter. Thank you. Okay. I promise. (sighs) All right. Thank you. Now that you've given me that, I forgive you. I'm willing to move on. Thank you for accepting that feedback. And if anyone wants to talk about Glitter, not (laughs) Sean Mendez, you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney and on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123. Now, Allison, you've received a lot of feedback and you've responded positively to that. So I just want to thank you for that. And should anyone (laughs) want to give you their own feedback, where can they find you? You can find me at Allison Horrocks on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, You can find us on Twitter at A Girls Pod and we're on Instagram at American Girls Podcast. You can also visit our website, and that's where you'll find more information about each of our episodes, maintained and curated by Anna, 
And you can also take our survey. We thank the nearly 700 people who have already taken it. You are awesome. Thank Um, you. And from the bottom of our hearts, we really do appreciate you supporting the show. We do. And, you know, if you have any technical difficulties, please get in touch with us. My dad basically said I hit play and nothing happened. So I don't know what that means. He's not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you know, we're all doing what we can. We're doing our best right now. Anyway, Allison. So thank you all so much for listening. We can't wait to see you on our next episode. Yes. Yay. <laughs>